I rolled a two. A two. How do you use maps at the table, and what are your favorite kinds of maps? That one was added by Shell Khan in episode 33. All right. Hello and welcome to Roll for Topic, a podcast where we discuss topics related to tabletop games. I'm Andy Rao. And I'm John Corey. And as you may have noticed, John is not our usual co-host. Chris is uh, out getting ready to have a new baby. So John has really graciously uh, volunteered to join as co-host for a couple of weeks while Chris is out. So John, thank you so much for coming on the show, not just as a guest, but now as a host. To start out, we have... um, Something a little bit different. A couple of weeks ago, my son came on the show for a couple of minutes because he had just run his very first game of Dungeons & Dragons. Well, as listeners of the show will remember, I have mentioned on many occasions my daughter who's in middle school who has been running and playing a lot of Dungeons & Dragons with her friends over the last couple of months. So, John, with your permission, I have asked my daughter to come on the show for a couple minutes to tell us how she has been doing running games over Zoom in this time of social distancing. So, daughter, greetings. Hi. (laughs) I know you have quite a bit of D&D gaming that's going on. So, what games are you running, and what are kind of the online tools that you're using to do it? Yeah, okay. So, uh, we're using D&D Beyond for the character sheets, and usually they just have that pulled up in the background. Um, And then we use Zoom for being in a video call because that's the only way we have. And um, yeah, (laughs) those are really the only two things we use. And you are running a Um, game? Yeah, The Lost Mine of Fandelberth is what it's called, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, and how has that been going? Uh, It's been going pretty good. I mean, all the players are overpowered, but also they were all dragonborns, so... (laughs) 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 I heard about the all dragonborn squad here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. you have come to me, and it's warmed my heart to hear a couple of very familiar Dungeon Master <laughs> problems. Uh, so why don't you tell me about one of the problems you have run into, either a problem just with running games or a problem with running them online. And then, yeah, what is a problem you've run into? And then um, maybe what have you done to try and address it? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I'm running for a bunch of middle schoolers, so it might not be a problem for everyone, but it's really hard to make them stay on track because, mm. like... Once they, like, mishear me or something and turn it into a joke, they will not shut up for the next ten minutes um, to solve it. I mean, most of the time, one of them is just like, can we start playing D&D now? <laughs> so you have, like, one one person who's, like, <laughs> the person who's trying to haul everybody back on track? <laughs> yep, that's pretty accurate. Okay. Yeah, if you get that one figured out, I think the entire world of GMs would like to know. Because... <laughs> <laughs> yes. You had one other problem you've mentioned to me on a number of times, and John... Well, there was the time that website downloaded a virus onto my computer. That was a problem. (laughs) Yes, risks of running games online in an online environment, I guess. So one other problem you mentioned, though, and John, you might have a little bit to say about this. You have run into a problem with overpowered characters. Can you tell us just a a little bit about that? Uh, They're all dragonborns with 18 armor class, and I can't hit them no matter what I try. And then they all deal, like, 10 damage in one hit, and it's like, yeah... (laughs) And that's that. So, John, I've given her, I've tried to give her a little bit of advice, but, John, what advice might you share to my daughter or to someone else who has players that are just, like, plowing through whatever she throws at them? Me and one or two of my friends who are also playing D&D, like, consider just throwing a Tarrasque at them. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That is one way to do it. Well, that's not the worst idea, throwing something at them that, well, there's two things I like to do. One is kind of create problems for them that aren't, 
about solving combat problems. So great if you deal a ton of damage, but can you jump across that uh, ravine, right? Do you have to come up with some creative solution to do that? And the other one would be throw something at them that they can't beat, right? That is, so it's not about actually winning the combat, but about surviving. And that makes it a little bit of a different game. And then it might actually be fun for them. Because I think, like a lot of the movies and stuff you guys probably like, they might involve combat and, and big fights like the Avengers or something. But more, they probably involve chases and that kind of thing. And that's another aspect of the play that maybe you could bring in that being super powered wouldn't help them. Has your father told you how jealous I am that his kids don't think he's just a huge nerd? Because my kids wouldn't play <laughs> D&D with me if I, uh, if I begged them to. So, yeah. He's raised us to be huge nerds, too. We don't know anything else except for this. This is fantastic. <laughs> you done good, a, Andy. I'm, I'm running a, a social experiment over here in my household uh, to <laughs> raise, raise creepy nerds. Uh, okay, well, well, I, um, I've met both your kids now, and neither of them are creepy, so I think you're doing <laughs> And I was going to say, my daughter may play games and stuff, but that doesn't mean she doesn't consider me a huge, irritating nerd, uh, as she <laughs> reminds true. me from time to time. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, um, thanks a ton for joining us. Yep. And best of luck dealing with your overpowered, min-maxed, <laughs> munchkin players. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. You know, I forgot to give her the, the best piece of advice, which is um, give them cursed weapons, but don't tell them until... <laughs> <laughs> we all went through that phase as well, right? Yes. Well, you know, um, thinking about how to advise her, there's this trap GMs fall into, which is, I think, to try and punish players for doing things in the game that the GM doesn't want them to be doing, but also that aren't really wrong of them to be doing within the context of the game. It's a tricky, it's a tricky issue, though, when people are doing a pretty reasonable in-game behavior that also is kind of taking some of your fun out of jamming. So Yeah, that's a hard thing and you and and I think every GM goes through this, but you craft these adventures and you get so excited and then they just blow through it or it doesn't go the way you expect. I think that's a very early GM thing. Like you want to challenge them and you want to make the game interesting for them. And I think also at your daughter's age like I think there's a fun in just blowing through everything easily, right? Yeah. And maybe maybe that, that, that changes as you get older, right? Yeah. But but I think that, that it sounds like they're having a good time. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, if you're having fun, it's you're doing it right. That's Yeah, exactly. Uh, if my co host co host Chris were here, he could um he could pop in and remind us with his little tagline that he says, but uh if your players yes. are having fun, you're a great GM and you're doing a good <laughs> job. So All right, so hey John before we jump into the topic, have you been doing any, have you been running any games or doing any sort of game adjacent activities over the last couple of weeks? Well, I have a couple of things going on. One is I, I have promised to run two sessions of Dungeon Crawl Classics and I haven't done it yet. I, I really need to just sort of get over the hump and run something online. So, well, two things happen. Uh, a friend of mine, Steve, is running a game that's sort of a storytelling game and it's one of those games where there are no rules, right? We're just doing a, a big sort of storytelling session, but there are there are rules of the universe we're operating in. It's very much like it, he called it in a barn and the, and the game <laughs> is we all sort of wake up in a barn and we don't know where we came from or what we are, or what we can do, sort of in the middle of this battle. And we discover the world and the rules of the world as we play. And that's sort of the game, which is, wow. it's, it's clearly a fantastic world. And, and the way he's painted it, it's sort of like, it feels like different worlds are sort of smashed together on wherever we are. And so there's, there's modern worlds and ancient worlds and all this weird stuff happening. And we've got to sort of figure out what the rules of the world are. 
so that's super fun. We've only played that once. Uh, we're going to play it again. Uh, one of our, your your previous hosts, or, or excuse me, guests, Jess was on, and she's in that game. And then I finally decided to decided to just restart my campaign. I just miss it too much, and I and I was it was going really well, and oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've decided to restart that and try to run that online. So oh, that's fantastic. So have you been mm-hmm. kind of um, trying? Have you been putting off running games online? It sounds I'm detecting I have. a sense that you are trying to muster the courage to just do this thing. What what's getting in the way of running online games for you? I don't know. I think I get so much energy from the sort of you know I play, play sort of more improvy games, and I get so much energy from that that sort of connection at the table, right? Yeah. Um, that I worry that I won't be good at it online, if that makes any sense. And I think the oh, other totally. thing is, is I is I like to pick up. I, I feel like I'm good at picking up cues from people, mm-hmm. and when you're online, that's harder to do. Yeah. Um, so that's the other thing I'm worried about. But I figure I, I got to figure it out sooner or later. I can't. I, can, I guess I could, but I really don't want to go a year or a year and a half without playing any role playing games. So. All them, all them hip kids are playing online, so I got to get with the program. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I, I do think that it is a little extra intimidating running the sort of improv games, those games that really do involve riffing off of each other. For better or for worse, with D anD D or Pathfinder, uh, you can always fall back on just kind of the the system of D anD D to drive itself to some extent. Yes, but I know you like to dig into those cool creative improv <laughs> games and that would yeah be a little intimidating you, you know what i think about a lot what what your what made me think when your daughter said she was playing um the lost mine of fandelver which i have not played but i had started i have looked at as an adult i look at role-playing games as an opportunity to make new and interesting stories with other people but there's another side to the hobby, which I am not that into, but I'm sort of reconsidering, which is this sort of shared experience, right? Yeah. Like how many people have, like, wasn't it, um, what, what is that other podcast? We should, probably shouldn't pitch other podcasts. The Adventure Zone. The first adventure they played, right, was The Lost Mind of Fandelver. Everybody has this shared experience of playing yeah. that adventure, which I don't have. And I'm wondering if there's something that the game offers that I'm not that I'm missing, right? Because I don't play a lot of D and D, so am I missing on that shared experience? That's going to be like, like when they're older, it's going to be like playing Monopoly, right? We play D and D, and everybody will have this shared idea of of what that game is. You know, I've uh, I've seen some interesting online chatter to that effect about in the across the different D and D editions and maybe other games as well. You know, what are those sort of shared touchstones that most D&D players have participated in? Yeah. You know, back in like back in the early days of gaming, you know, because everybody was buying the old D&D box set that came with like, say, Keep on the Borderlands or something, you know, that was a a shared introduction to D&D. Everybody that played that one. Bazil- yeah, that everyone... That Tomb of Horrors, everybody played, has the yep. Tomb of Horrors story, right? Yeah. Exactly. And every edition and iteration of D&D has had at least one or two of those moments that like a significant percentage of the player base has encountered in some way. And it, it, I think it tends to be, you know, either the initial adventures that are published or whatever ends up getting packaged with the you know the starter beginner set or whatever but not entirely but um i can see how if you are really invested in mostly doing your own thing you would have this sense of like you know i i didn't i didn't get my party killed at this famously difficult encounter in whatever 
keep right. on the borderlands. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm curious, and I'm thinking a lot about that as someone who doesn't actually play D and D or own the current D and D books. I'm wondering, like, should I do that? Am I missing? So yeah, that's one <laughs> of the things that's in my in my brain. Okay. I have been. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to mention before we jump into our topic. How, are you familiar with the author Tim Powers? I know that name, but I could not tell you one of his books. I think he writes pulpy fiction. He does very yes. appropriate and to people of our stripe. Yeah, I've always he has always felt to me like an incredibly gaming related author. Uh, not that I think he is a gamer or has anything to do with the role playing uh, hobby, but he's he's not like I, Jim Butcher. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so he's. Um, I was introduced to him via uh, Ken Heights writing over the years. Do you know Ken Heights? That's probably why I know the name. I used to be a regular listener to um, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, but you know, after yeah. I don't know three hundred and some episodes, I kind of moved on. But yeah, I was a religious listener for a long time. Yeah, I haven't listened to that podcast too much, but um, Tim Powers comes up on a regular basis in Ken Heights writings, or at least the writings in like kind of the late nineties, early two thousands when I was reading a lot of his stuff. And he comes up because Tim Powers writes these sort of quintessential fantasy historical pulp adventures where he mm. grounds the story in a real historical setting or time period. That but sounds then he, pretty great. Yeah, then he roots around and he finds the weird or unexplained bits uh, from that time period. That sounds and like he, Ken Height in a nutshell. <laughs> it does. It does. And then he builds something out of and out of that he builds a framework for like a cool adventure. Oh, and nice. so you get both pretty good historical fun. Like it, he picks interesting time periods. You know, Victorian London and um, Cold War spies and what's and the, what's of, one that you've read that you pirates. liked? Yeah, well, the one I'm reading right now, the, the reason I'm bringing up this really long tangent is I started rereading one of his older books called The Stress of Her Regard. Uh-huh. And it Which is, is a about, great title. It, yeah, it is a wonderful title. It is about a character who winds up getting mixed up with uh, Byron and Keats and Shelley and uh, a lot of the other guys in that literary social circle. Sure. And the idea is they're kind of as a group they are plagued by these vampire like beings that um oh wow that that fuel their creativity but then but sort of leech off of them at the same time and the stress of her regard the novel is sort of a story of this guy just going through the decades trying to shake loose his um kind of addiction or uh, victimization by one of these creatures but most of the fun is not, you know, in the vampire story, but it's in the the interactions with those historical characters and just kind of imagining how those historical characters that are very well known and well documented right. might have gotten tangled into like this very fantastic, very fantastic stuff in between their more uh, well known public stuff. So that's that's kind of great. And it tells me where Doctor Who got the idea for that episode last season. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't watch Doctor Who, but um that, yeah, they, I had a Mary, they had one where they encountered them. Mary Shelley, and, and it was a similar kind of thing. But anyway, I'm oh, that's great. Your yeah. Oh no, I didn't have anything else to say. I was just babbling. I was just gonna say, um, uh, the you know that sort of thing. It just feels so richly gameable. Um, yeah. Because we all, we all like history, but most of us, you know, there's a reason I think that just like straight historical RPG settings don't tend to really dominate the market because for better or for worse, we always we want. We crave that a little bit something, whether it's like magic or 
elements of supernatural horror or something like that. Yeah, um, or even I mean, I think Ken Hyde pointed this out. Even Game of Thrones, which is super fantastic, is 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 from a historical context, the War of the Roses, right? So start with something historical that is almost unbelievable, right? Like yeah. the War of the Roses, and then you know go crazy with it, which is what they did with Game of Thrones. So yeah, I love that idea. That sounds fantastic. Tim Powers, the what of her regard is the name? Uh, this one's called The Stress of Her Regard. The Stress of Her Regard. Okay, I'm going to check it out. So hey, we've been um, we've been bantering for a bit, and we should jump into today's topic, which is a really good one. Yeah, and... let, me, um, let me read it again. Um, yeah. It's from Shell Khan. How do you use maps at the table, and what are your favorite kinds of maps? So I think there's sort of two threads there. There's one about using literal maps at the table, which we could talk about a little bit. But now we've got to talk about virtual maps, too. Um, I don't think we can avoid that because it's uh, super relevant. So Absolutely. So why don't we start out with our by finding out a little bit what each of our experiences with maps. If I were to play in one of your games, is there a map involved? And what does it look like? Sure. Um, usually, what I typically do these days, first of all, let me say I love maps and um, nothing makes me happier than the um, old-fashioned blue mm. hex grid map from the original D&D adventures. I love those. Um, yep. So I love looking at maps, but I don't make detailed maps as a general rule. I sort of sketch out ideas and, and go with the flow a little bit. What I use at my games, I actually pulled it up here, it's called the note board. And what it is, is this crazy thing. It's a, um, it's basically a whiteboard that folds up to the size of a 3x5 card. And you can unfold it so it's like maybe 18 inches by, by 3 feet, maybe a little bigger. And, and one side is completely blank, and one side is uh, hex grid or regular grid. And you can, and I just, it's a dry erase, so I use a whiteboard marker. And I just sketch out, I'm not that much, you know, I'm not that great a map drawer, but mm-hmm. I sketch out just what's happening and what they see. And, and I use that for a lot of different perspectives. So in my regular game, I'll do that kind of thing. Just quick sketching on a whiteboard type thing in the middle of the table that everybody can see. Um, in my current campaign, it's a sort of world. It's not world hopping that they hop from world to world, but, but the characters take advantage of this sort of teleporter system to get where mm. they need to go. And, yep. and so I keep a map of the, of the continent they're on and the world they're playing in up all the time to say, okay, now you're here, you know. Um, yep. Those are mostly how I interact with maps. I think that's one thing I'm hesitant about is figuring out how I'm going to do that online. I've got Roll20. I haven't tried it yet, and I think I just need to bite the bullet and try to create a map in Roll20, you know, yeah. come what may. So, yeah. Yeah, my my impression, I also have not really done much in with maps and online games I've been in. The online games I've been in, I have tended to try to avoid using the advanced features of whatever tool we're using because just to prevent the whole game from bogging down as we try and figure out the feature i do know i'm i'm pretty confident that like roll 20 and i'm sure other services have pretty robust mapping tools but they also look like you need to invest some time in advance of your first game figuring them out which may be a lot to ask yeah that's definitely a barrier for me what are you doing for maps in your current campaign to be honest, the last number of D&D or D&D-ish games I've run have been kind of settingless one-shots or mm. short campaigns yeah. that have not really needed a like what you call a world map. Um right. like not a they have not needed a map that's like larger than, you know, I don't know, a couple dozen miles across. 
Okay. Um, so it has been a while since I have flopped down on the table a giant, you know, map of whatever, the Forgotten Realms. Right. I think the last time that a big, large regional map was used in a game was when I was running um, kind of an off-and-on game of the One Ring. Partly because Middle-earth is such a wonderfully mapped out a world and partly because that role-playing game um, invests a lot of its mechanical energy into traveling across middle earth right traveling is like a core activity in that game yeah the map is kind of a necessary artifact uh when playing that so that's one where you we have a big map of whatever the corner of middle earth and it's broken into hex grids and people are plotting out what path are we going to take to get to rivendell or whatnot Right. But I have to say, unless the setting really calls for a big map like that, I usually, the only maps that come up at my games are like kind of tactical or regional ones. This is such a a very broad question, but when you're playing DCC or games like that, um, Mm -hmm. do you have a set world with a map that the players know about? And does it make sense that the players know where they are on this map of the continent? Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, I'll give two examples. So when we play Dungeon Crawl Classics, the thing I love about Dungeon Crawl Classics is the funnel, right? And there's a couple of funnel adventures I use. And so when I run those two, I don't create a setting because I'm not really creating a campaign world. We're just going to play. We're going to one-off. I skip that whole thing entirely. In my regular campaign, which is an adaptation of uh, Keith Baker's failed but wonderful uh, Phoenix Dawn Command, there is a set world, and I'm actually using that setting. So there's a map hmm. uh, that I use that's very specific. And where they go and what they do on that map is more important yep. than in DCC, which is, I would say, I don't want to say regional, right? Like, I think you used that word, but in, in you know, in, in the um, Sailors on the Starless Sea, which is, which is a great DCC adventure, it's about a village that has a keep on the hill above it, and you go from the village to that keep, and that is all you know about the world. Yeah. In a campaign I played before that, I played a dungeon world game, and we just did collaborative player um, world creation. And the world was sort of general fantasy world, but we would all add bits here and there. Mm-hmm. And we sort of grew the world as we went. So they had a city that they started in. They went to another city. There was a uh, you know, an evil forest kind of thing. Um, they got lost in at some point, but those those were added as we went. The other thing I'll bring up is when I first got back into role-playing games, I had just taken some time off in the, in the 90s. What I did do is I did draw a map of the continent with hmm. the names of the countries and all this stuff. And I take a lot of pleasure actually from doing that or from a well-constructed setting or constructing it myself. But I, um, I don't do that so much anymore as much as I enjoy drawing a map. I actually used to be years ago, this is a total tangent, but I was a draftsman. I used to work in engineering drafting, and I would love to just draw the maps. It was just so much fun. So I love a good map. I haven't done it in years, but yeah, I love it. You know, we're touching on some related topics like setting design and stuff, but just the question of having a map or not, I think, says something important about the setting, and it it sets up a feel for your game. I think a game like DCC, where, as you say, DCC is like a, a regional game, to use yes. the term we brought up or whatever. And and I think that is an important part of the experience it's trying to evoke. Because there is this sense, this same sense you get if you read like a Jack Vance's fiction. 
or yes. um, Morcock, who we're always mentioning, this sense that the world is is mysterious and bigger than whatever you're imagining, and there's no limit on like what you could encounter or where you could wind up going. As opposed to like Tolkien, who very wonderfully, but on the other end of that spectrum, has this you know extremely clearly defined limits, yes. physical limits of the world that that I think suggests that the world itself, that the whole setting is going to be a, a tidier, more coherent experience, which yeah. works well for the story Tolkien is trying to tell, but would feel weird if, uh, you know, Michael Moorcock were trying to tell a story with that same level of, like, specificity. Yeah, now that you mention it, I try to think, I, I mean, I guess there have been some Moorcock books, like the Elric books, there's a map that goes with them, but, like, other Moorcock books don't, there's no map that goes with them. Right. Yeah. Like you're just sort of imagining it in your mind. And I think that's because you're hopping between realms. You're go, going all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Moorcock might not be the best example there because I know he, there are some maps of like the very his various settings. No, but I think you're right. Like it's it's theater of the mind. And I'll say, I mean, one one thing I picked up from, again, my favorite current game and game that I've been playing lately. Dungeon World is is draw maps, but leave blanks. Right. Like, yeah. You've got to, if, I think the caution for using map at, a map at the table is if it's all filled in, right, then the characters don't have any, you know, if a character says they want to go to a certain kind of place, but if you've got a map on the table and it's all filled in and there's no places like that on it, well, then you're, you're not really, you're disappointing your character, right? You're a player. Yeah. And so, so sort of leaving, leaving some blanks um, gives them opportunity to come up with where they want to go and what they want to do. And I would actually say that works at a tactical level too, right? I think it's really fun when players come up with things they want to try. Like I was in a Star Wars game and somebody said, you know, I kind of want to, can I like hack through a, a steam pipe and stick it in the guy's face like an Empire Strikes Back? I'm like, sure, there's a steam pipe right there. But if you, yeah. but there's also a pleasure on the other side of that is if you have a, a, and this is certainly the Dungeon Crawl Classics way, right? Is you have a map the players can see it, and what they're trying to do is figure out what they should be doing based on the details of that map. So it's sort of two different approaches. I generally use the, the first one, but the second one has its own pleasures. So as a as someone who's delved into map making and has that sort of engineering uh, or that drafting background, I'm curious, what are some features of really well-done maps that when you mm. see them in a game product, you are like, fantastic? And, and the, maybe the converse is, what do most maps not do or not have on them uh, that makes you wince? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that one thing that people are doing really well now that they didn't used to do, right, is consider three dimensions. Mm -hmm. I think in early games, it was kind of two dimensions. And I think we, we talked about this with uh, on a previous show, but maps that only portray two dimensions are kind of disappointing. But if you have... Think about if you have a bridge that you need to cross, that's exciting in two dimensions. But if you also have a cliff above that bridge um, that people can attack you from, well, now you're thinking in three dimensions and that's much more exciting. So I think yeah. I think there's a lot of people making cool three-dimensional maps and there's some cool ones in, in DCC, but, but when I don't see it, I'm always like, yeah, we're not, you know, it's a different world, right? Like three dimensions yeah. can make the game so much more interesting and exciting. Yeah, as soon as you started talking about that, I thought about DCC because those books have a really idiosyncratic and yes. wonderful art style. And one thing I like about the maps that Dungeon Girl Classics uses is 
the maps are not exactly meant to be used as like in-game artifacts, but no. they look like the sort of scribblings um, oh, that man. somebody, that a crazy <laughs> person in the setting yes. sketched of like the, because they lack really precise measurements of distance and grids and things like that for the most part. And they, they have a sort of subjective feel to them that is very yeah, like, appealing. I would say they're expressionistic, right? Like they want you to yeah. feel, they want to they wanna imbue the game with its own, you know, there's a certain sort of otherworldliness and cosmicness to that game and they try to br- deliver that in their maps, right? Which yeah. I think is kind of wonderful. And, and as much as I love a well-rendered sort of clean draftsman style drawing in a game book, I much prefer like a, a kind of crazy uh, rough around the edges map um, that maybe yeah. evokes a sense of place a little yeah. bit more, you know? Oh, absolutely. And one thing those maps do for me as a GM is they just give me a little bit of extra, a little reminder that I'm supposed to take this and play with it. Yes. I, I'm supposed to take this this dungeon or this whatever is being mapped out and I'm supposed to to work with it. and. When it's because it's drawn in that sort of subjective kind of crazy style, it's really it's really almost outright stating, you know, this obviously isn't a photorealistic depiction of this area. So take these as your cues as you, the GM, work this, get this place out through play. And I find that really appealing. Yeah, I think that's great. As you really hit on something there with this sort of I hadn't thought about that with DCC until you said it. But yeah, those maps are so interesting and crazy that it really adds something to the game maybe that's one of the reasons i like it so much do you uh, to switch a little bit um still on the topic of maps Mm -hmm. do you have players who map how do Mm -hmm. the players like keep track of where they are yeah that's a good question i generally speaking will just sketch it for them i do not do hugely complex areas or dungeons right so Mm -hmm. I will just sort of do a quick sketch and like, here's the main room, here's the two side rooms, here's the hallway. You know, what do you guys want to do? And I will sketch that out for them. And usually I do it because eventually they go, somebody will, I'll try to explain it and somebody will go, I'm just not following you. Right. And I'll, (laughs) and I'll sketch it out for them. Yep. Uh, I'd rather sketch, you know, what I'm thinking to them because I'm getting it from their ideas anyway. So yeah. Yeah. But I don't, um, I don't have a map or anything like that. And yeah. I don't expect them to keep track. I'm happy to remind them because this game is so hard to follow anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've both talked up the maps in DCC quite a bit. Um, what I want to ask you next is if you have some favorite maps uh, that you've come across, maybe besides DCC, in sure. some game books. And while you think about it, I, I'll answer that question myself. If you've ever had the joy of flipping through any of the modules published for the Middle Earth role-playing game back in the 80s and 90s. Oh, they're so uh, good. Yeah, say what you will about, like, you know, the game system and stuff. But, man, whoever they had doing those maps, and the name is slipping my mind, but I encourage you to Google this if you're listening. Uh, There are some fantastic maps of most of Middle Earth scattered through those products. Um, It's a really... Yeah, it's a really recognizable style. It's very, yeah. very precise. So it's kind of the opposite of this sort of impressionistic DCC style. But it is they're just a joy to look at. Yes, I am. I, I'm glad you said that. The, uh, the I own two game books from that game. I used to own many. I used to own the very early 80s books. I had a ton of them and I sold. But I kept two, which is the second edition main rule book and their Minas Tirith oh. uh, game book. 
that came with, and I still have it, this fold-out map that when folded out was like the size, four times the size of the book, and it was a detailed view, no scale, no hex, no no grid, no nothing, just a drawing of, top-down drawing of Minas Tirith, and I yeah. have used that in so many games. And like there's just colors on the on the different buildings to give it character. It's not like the green buildings mean this and the orange buildings mean this. It's just... Yeah. It just has character and depth, and uh, it's fantastic. That's one of my favorite game maps of all time, and I, I've hung on to that just for that reason. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Absolutely. Anything else uh, that's jumped out at you over the decades? Or the well, I, I mean, I do love to look at um, those old first edition AD&D maps, those blue ones, and mm-hmm. they're very draftsman-like, and I do enjoy them. Uh, so I will always just sort of ponder those. Those are always a lot of fun. As far as other maps, and I'm trying to think of any that draw, jump out to me, in recent years, it's the, it's the Sailors on the Starless Sea, the maps, and that are just fantastic. Some of the maps that have struck me as as really good, I, it, I have a hard time putting my finger on why it is, but there is this certain balance that a good map will have between feeling full enough of stuff yeah. and yet open enough for you to add your own stuff into it to feel like this can be your world. So I guess what I want to see, you know, when I open a book is more stuff on your map of the continent or whatever, more stuff than just a couple of capital cities. Right. And I want to see some like adventure looking things. I want to see some ruins or some weird geographical features or things like that. But I want there to be some big spaces that aren't empty. They're just waiting for me to fill them with stuff. I remember over the years I've dipped my toes in and out of the fan community of the role-playing game Exalted. Are you familiar uh-huh. with that game? I know what it is, yeah. It is interesting how much of the debates about that game uh, in the fan community have centered not around the game rules itself, although there's mm-hmm. plenty of that, but around the map. Because this was a game where across its editions they hit and missed that goal of making the map feel right. Right. And so there are editions of that game where they it feels like they've overmapped it and there's nothing. It, it just subjectively feels like there's no room in here for any of my stuff. And that leads right. to the sense of like, I'm just running somebody else's campaign. You know, it, it, it's not, yes. it, it wasn't the intent of the map makers, but they, it creates this like, Thing that feels very real when you're the GM and you're trying to slot your campaign into this pre-existing world. And then other editions of it have had these like big swaths of emptiness that are like, you know, a thousand miles wide of nothing. Yeah. And I mean you're supposed to you're supposed to put your own stuff in there and that's fantastic. But you need a little bit of like texture in there to to grab onto to do that. You know what I mean? And so that has the effect of making the world seem incredibly empty. So um, I I bring this up not to pick on Exalted, which is a neat setting and everyone, you should go check it out. But um, that is one where the map says a lot about, it says a lot to the GM about what they can and should be doing. And it's weird how much of a message your map can convey to a GM. I'll just say that. That is fantastic, and now that you say, now that you put that out there, I will. I'll bring up two maps that I think of. One is 
one that I think hits that sweet spot, and one of the reasons I, I fell in love with the game, is Keith Baker's Phoenix Dawn Command, which we should talk about at length on this show sometime, because we yeah. keep bringing it up. But It keeps coming up. I know nothing about it, and so I'm just going to need to sit you guys down sometime and hear all about yeah. it. But. Yeah, we'll have to do that. But um, it has a map, much like you're describing. It has two great attributes. One is it has sort of mysterious things that they don't really go into depth about, right? But they do discuss. They give you hints about, which is great. They give you plenty of space to add your own stuff. And I think the other thing is that it has a style that it's own, which is true of that whole game. The game, all of the art, the maps, everything in that game is sort of abstracted. It's not hyper-realistic. It's sort of this flat, two-dimensional... It's, I don't want to say cartoonish, because it doesn't look like a cartoon, but super stylized art, and that carries over to the map. Yeah. And I, that's one of the reasons I leave it in the middle of the table. It's just a great looking map. So that's, yeah. that's one good example. The other one I'll bring up sort of that your own spaces thing versus the totally filled in thing, right? You could think of the forgotten realms of the sword coast. I mean, there's not yeah. a ton to add there, but the one that I think thought of when you brought that up was, um, RuneQuest Glorantha. Oh, which I think yeah. they just came out with this gigantic book detailing the whole thing. And that is yes. a map where there's, I don't think any space yes. for you to add anything that it, it's full. And But some people love it to hear, hear about all the different myth and stuff. So I think it's just a, an interesting difference, right? Who wants to add their own stuff, who wants to draw their own, and who wants to pick up yep. this detailed map that has this just exploding with stuff. My other question about a setting like that is, particularly the, you know, a super famous one like Glorantha or, the, or um, the Forgotten Realms, is are the players enjoying the discovery of that? Yeah. Because they go to a place and they know everything about it. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's an interesting. That's a whole different. We, you know, we're we're definitely drifting into setting territory there. But that's another thing I would be very curious to discuss sometime. The sort of discovery aspect of a game versus the 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 uncovering knowledge. There's a pleasure in uncovering. It's like rewatching a movie, right? Yeah. You know what Indiana Jones is going to do, but you love it anyway, right? So, yeah, I think there's two very different pleasures there. So. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to talk about this more at length in another episode. But you know, it's that. Um, I've definitely run into that with Middle Earth. You know what? It, what do I have to say about Minas Tirith that everyone at this table doesn't know, you know? Um, right, we've right. all we've We're all nerds and we've read the books. And it's the whole Star Wars thing, you know? So you're playing in Star Wars. Is it more fun to go to Tatooine and, and play in this world that we know and love already? Or is it more fun to be in Star Wars but to go to something that's not Tatooine, right? You know? Right. Um, and I think you get different answers if you were to talk to different game groups as, you know, just what's what's fun for them but um i think i know what we're going to talk about next time yeah i know i want to i want to switch to setting stuff actually because this, this is interesting stuff so um we should wrap up before too long so but what haven't we touched on that has been on your mind about maps um i, I have a i guess a question i put out to the to our listeners is do you enjoy drawing them and and do you feel that you're good at it right like I actually, um, for all my love of drawing and drafting, I actually sketch really sloppy maps. Mm, like, I yeah. don't put a lot of effort into it. But I have in the past. It's just not where I am right now. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, again, different forms of pleasure. What do you, what, how do you enjoy, how do you like creating maps at the table? What's the, what's the, what's the fun part of that for you? That would be the, the question. Because I'm a total slob now. But there was a time where I would, you know, carefully draw everything and the cross-hatching around the earth yep. and... Well, you know, and I and and so you know, again, different strokes for different strokes, and players change over time too. So, yeah, I've done, I've had a similar journey. You know, certainly when I was younger, influenced by all those incredibly detailed Middle Earth maps, I was um, I was referencing while running that game. 
you know, when I made my own worlds, they were the maps were that level of detail. It took forever, right. and and these days it's more like, all right, here's a big blob that'll be the whatever. <laughs> this is the forest over here, and then I guess we have a desert over here, and yeah, over here's the cursed wasteland. You know, just kind of big, real general stuff that I anticipate will be fleshed out if we ever go to that place, right? Um, right. But that I don't have the energy to map out until we're actually. Until somebody is actually giving us, you know, taking us there to play in that environment. Right, exactly. Uh, I guess one last question I have. Have you ever, have you ever created kind of an in-game, like a, an artifact out of a map, you know, for the enjoyment of your players? Have you ever I have. handed them a, a crinkly old map that you carefully aged or yes. something like that? I have. I, you Tell know, me you about burn, it. Burn the edges and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I did. And I um, I forget what it was for even. Um, I think it was for a Rollmaster game. They were trying to find the, a, the tomb of a dead dwarven king. And I did. I folded it a bunch of times and I burnt the edges and sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, rub, made it, rubbed it out so it wasn't completely clear. I had a lot of fun doing that. And I remember um, the other one I'll give you is uh, one of my favorite AD&D adventures, the, the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. Oh, yes. The original I'm... one you... Yeah, I ran this a bunch. Yep. I've run that so many times. But it had wonderful Hannah handouts, which are these cartoony this cartoony map of a ship traveling between two points and I just that had like the scroll work on it that was printed yeah. and I just remembered I still have it, having that handout and giving it to people and just having them go, hmm, and look at it and I you know, that's one of my favorite handout memories. But yes, I have totally conditioned a map. That's yeah. You know, um just thinking of of random things about map a kind of map i really have a lot of appreciation for is a good city map if players are going to the city i do my best to have that a map of that city that i can put out on the table not necessarily so that we can track what street are you walking along although it's fun to be able to do that but um, a good city map can just really provide a lot of like flavor to an urban scene i think and so i enjoy especially yes. if it's like a giant metropolis type city I think a good map with all sorts of cool winding streets and different yes. colored buildings. Look, it brings a lot as like an artifact at the gaming table. It brings a lot. I have one question actually, and I'll, yeah. I'll answer it for myself and I'll ask you. When you recreate maps, I tend to reuse things. What's something that you always reuse? I'll, I can answer first if you want to think about it because I know. Yeah, you, answer you answer first. Let me give us some thought. Well, there was this great, um, in the 80s, there was a series of fantasy novels called, I think it was Thieves World. I could be misremembering it, but there was a place there. It was where all the thieves hung out, and it was called the Maze. Oh. And it was the city guard would never go there, and it was like this sort of warren of... Uh, but if you wanted to find information or to buy something illegal, this is where you had to go. And I always include a place like that in every city, sort of this this place run by thieves and, and, and simple folk, and, and the authorities stick out of it. That is something that's in almost every one of my city maps or big city games. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I guess for me, it's the map of, again, looking back to Middle-Earth role-playing, the first edition of that had an introductory adventure in it that had a castle out in the wilderness in mm -hmm. some ruins with a dungeon complex underneath it and some uh, various stuff in the environment around it. I've reused that map in a lot of contexts, anytime I need a ruined castle. Nice. Partly because I encountered it, you know, when I was so young, so it made an impression, but also because it's just a great map of like a, a pretty good sized ruined castle that's just big enough to like have distinct areas of it to explore. 
Right. Uh, and but it's not so big that it's too much to take in. I don't remember like the name of it, just that it's in this Trollshaws adventure. It might I be. I feel in like your... there was a Trollshaws book yeah. that I had. Yeah. Uh, check your. You have the second edition book. I don't. Re- I don't remember if this is in the second edition book, but check that and see if there's like a a ruined castle with you know three or four towers and some of them are kind of partly ruined and i feel um, like i remember this i'll text you a picture of it later yeah it's just it's just got um it's just like a good good general good general map of like yeah. a ruined castle type thing awesome uh, so. all right well hey uh i think that we should probably wrap up before we go we have gotten a little lax about doing this but why don't we replace the topic that we just uh, discuss. So we just discussed a topic about maps, mm-hmm. and we need to replace it on the table with something else. Do you have something that is burning in your mind that we ought to talk about? If you don't say anything, I'm going to get some sort of setting-related uh, question up there because I've really enjoyed the parts of this discussion that have veered into setting building. Yeah, I uh, I don't have one off the top of my head. I know I'm supposed to become prepared with one, but yeah, something around settings. Maybe we could add a new question about you know, how much of the setting do you create versus your players create? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, well, maybe we um, can codify that a little bit. And yeah, we'll codify that between episodes um, because that's, I feel like that's actually sort of an under-discussed um, topic on this show, which alarmingly is in the dozens of episodes now. So we need to, that, that's an important part of GMing that we need to, to get around to covering at some point. But um, in the meantime, John, do you have any um, kind of game-related plans that you haven't already mentioned? I know you're getting working up the courage for your online game. In yeah. the next couple of weeks, do you anticipate anything else exciting happening? Uh, no, I don't have anything else planned. I feel like I just got to get over that hump of running my own first online game. And then I have all sorts of plans, right? Then I'm going to run DC yeah. again and this other thing and that That's other thing. Right. But I feel like it's, yeah, just getting over the hump of, of running a game so I'm comfortable. You know, one of speaking of GMing plans, one of these days I want us to discuss. I want us all when we get a couple of people on the show. I want us to sit down, and I want us to describe the campaign we've been aching to run for the longest amount of time without actually yeah. running it. You know, like the yes. one that that we have perpetual plans to run that we're always it's always lurking in the back of our minds. Uh, that yes. maybe we should get a group together and do this, but that it hasn't happened for whatever reason. But I, yep, I got it in my mind. And <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. Well, hey, a um, couple of things. First, John, uh, thanks a ton for being willing to be to join me as co-host here. And uh, if you are willing, um, yeah, I think you're going to be co-host for a couple more episodes yet. Um, I'm really excited. That would be awesome. I yeah, know that Chris and, is super busy, so any way I can help out would be fun. I'm yeah, we're so grateful to have you... Um, have you join us so all right and in the meantime i hope everybody is keeping safe and healthy and um getting some really good gaming and game planning in. i have been andy Rao, and i've been john Corey, and this has been roll for topic and as chris would say if you were here if your players are having fun you're a great gm miss you chris <laughs>